This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you today? Shortly before the news headlines at half past 12 today, I'll tell you about a couple of big WA farming properties that have hit the market this week. One is in the Wheat Belt, covering almost 78,000 hectares of land. And the other one is further south, sort of in prime wine country. There's a couple of uh, wineries, some vineyards and a farm included in that one. So we'll get to that shortly here on the Country Hour. Also, we'll head to the north of the state where this year cattle export numbers from this part of the state were well down on average. And that was mainly due to a lack of demand from one of our key markets. We'll get to that shortly. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour and we're going to start in the north of the state where pastoralists are saying that deliberately lit fires cost them about $44 million over the last three years. A survey by the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association shows arson accounted for more than 2.6 million hectares of pastoral land being burnt. This year, the figure is more than 800,000 hectares. Some pastoralists are saying they've also lost thousands of head of cattle in the fires. The KPCA's Bron Christensen says they've taken the survey data to the WA Police Minister. The survey was prompted by feedback to the KPCA from producers who were very concerned about the the level of um, maliciously lit fires that were occurring on their properties. We've had uh, uh, notification of properties that have basically been burnt out completely, uh, concern about being able to get the fodder, concern, and it was sort of exacerbated by um, at the same time where you had the live export issues happening. So that's when sort of producers started coming to us and saying, look, we really have this issue. Were producers coming to you and saying that it's worse in recent years than they've seen before? Yeah, they do believe it has been increasing. There's always, I mean, there's always the risk of accidental fires. And, um, you know, so we are doing a lot of work or there has been a lot of work done with, um, you know, for example, tourist areas to say about um, responsible lighting of fires and and things like that. But uh, no, from our understanding and from the belief of the pastoralists is that uh, these fires are, are basically being deliberately lit to cause mischief or mayhem or, or maliciousness, we're not sure which, but uh, yeah, these fires are actually being deliberately lit where in one case there was just, you know, one lit and then further down the road another one was lit and, and yeah, so it, it is a concern. You heard from one survey respondent who lost upwards of 4,000 head of cattle yep. in a deliberately yep. lit fire. What was the yep. kind of emotional toll that you heard of yeah. these fires taking <laughs> on pastoralists? The four thousand head was spread across quite a few um, okay. pastoralists. Yeah. yeah. So, and um, in all honesty, we were fairly surprised that the number wasn't higher. But uh, it's probably due to the fact that people have moved cattle as soon as they saw anything. They moved cattle as soon as they saw anything happen, or just pure luck that the cattle weren't in those paddocks at the time. Um, obviously, the paddocks that are being lit up are, are fairly accessible. Um, look, the emotional toll of, on it is is very high. It's uh, it's not nice to lose animals anyway, and it's particularly not nice when you know that it's not a nice way to go. Um, it wouldn't be a nice way for any animal to die, um, and yeah, it, it's not a nice thing to come across. From here, what would you like to see done? 
We're, we are um, wishing to speak to, to the government and to the police minister about we would like to see an arson force present up here in the Kimberley and the Pilbara um, on a, even on a seasonal basis. Um, I just think it would be a, a good deterrent as well as actually maybe being able to apprehend some of the people and prosecute some of the people who are who are doing this sort of thing so that it's actually a bit of a warning to others that it's it's not just a fun thing um you know there's lives at risk here so we're really we're really very keen on um, seeing some sort of arson squad presence up here we have been working with the local police who are wonderful but their resources are stretched um and yeah they just they don't have the resources to be able to to actually um, be out sort of policing arson um, events preventatively. KPCA CEO Bron Christensen speaking to Alice Marshall about the results of a recent survey done with their members about deliberately lit fires in WA's north. 10 past 12. Member for Mining and Pastoral Neil Thompson says the state government isn't doing enough to stop the problem. Uh, look, this is uh, consistent with the concerns raised with me by pastoralists themselves. Uh, it's, a, it's a major problem uh, and, and unfortunately the government seems to just want to pass the buck. I did raise uh, this issue in Parliament near the end of this year and uh, just got passed uh, from one department to the other. Unfortunately, uh, there seems to be a pattern across the Kimberley, uh, where people, uh, a certain cohort of people, think it's okay to set fire to to the uh, landscape and um, do so during at the wrong time of the year, of course, and not in a controlled environment. And this is creating enormous pressure on our communities, on on the pastoralists in particular, who are often at the forefront of fighting those fires, and also obviously the impact on the infrastructure, their stock, and on on their fodder. When it comes to action from the government, what would you like seen done? Well, clearly uh, the, the massive costs involved, the, the massive numbers here, uh, millions of dollars of losses, uh, this is a, this is a, a criminal activity. Uh, you, you can't set fire to the bush without a permit uh, during uh, the time, I believe it's um, you know, in, the, in the dry season. Uh, it's quite a long period of time. Uh, you must have a permit and now... Uh, just to go and set fire to the bush is criminal activity. So the the government should be getting the arson squad involved and doing some investigation, chasing these people down and charging them. Uh, there should be enough evidence to be found about who is who is perpetrating uh, this crime, uh, and there must be some education as well into the communities to make sure people understand the consequence of of setting fire to to the uh, to the um, landscape. It's just not on. You know, we're talking uh, many millions of dollars of losses, of lost uh, infrastructure, of stock, of time. Uh, when I was in uh, staying at one of the stations recently, uh, the, the staff had been working massive hours, having to divert all their attention from their normal uh, duties, you know, the things they do in managing stock and so forth, uh, to go out and fight fires, uh, fight fires over periods of several weeks and also uh, not just for the, the pastoral station, but protecting the assets of, of some of the uh, remote communities, for example. So often uh, it's the pastoral uh, staff who bear the brunt of uh, that protection of those other assets, which are, are the responsibility of the state government. So this is a big issue. Do you think having the arson squad up here in the north would solve the issue of deliberately lit fires at the moment being seen as a reactive issue, not a proactive one? 
Uh, well, look, you know, as I said, it has to be both an education program. Uh, so, you know, we have the rangers, the, we have ranger groups across the Kimberley. They should be involved in this process. The ranger groups could do a great job in, um, you know, reducing fuel loads uh, at the appropriate times and with all the necessary permits. And so they play a key role and they could also be involved in this uh, education process within the community. Uh, but uh, there is no excuse. And I think um, the arson squad, you've got to have a, you know, a, a, a both uh, the carrot and the stick, you could say. Uh, so we have the education, but having, uh, given that the situation has got to the stage it is now with millions of hectares of, of land being burnt at the wrong time of the year with these intense hot fires, uh, which uh, is not good for our environment and also not good for our community, uh, we need to also um, bring the weight of the law to bear on those uh, perpetrators so that we actually get a, uh, send a message that this is not tolerable. Member for the Mining and Pastoral Region, Neil Thompson, speaking to Alice Marshall. And a spokesperson for Minister for Police, Paul Papalia, says the matter has been referred to WA Police, who have been contacted for comment. 14 past 12. In some other cattle news today, a couple from Western Australia's Midwest has been fined a total of $3,000 for their role in a cattle rustling operation in 2021. They received spent convictions, which means they won't have a criminal record. Clinton and Emma Sponge both pleaded guilty in Perth District Court to one count each of fraud involving producing false invoices for the transport of stolen cattle. The pair own the Mora-based livestock trucking company called Spongehall. The couple pleaded guilty to doctoring invoices for Gascoigne pastoralists Richard Arends and Elizabeth Third. So the Spongs, Third and Arends, as well as four others, were charged in 2021 as part of the Rural Crime Squad's Operation Topography which investigated the theft of hundreds of cattle in the state's north. It's been reported the stolen cattle could have been worth around $800,000. Clinton Sponge's legal representative told the court his client was on the periphery and an innocent courier who let loyalty and friendship overrule common sense. Judge Wallace said the couple were not likely to reoffend, and the forgery was not in keeping with their character and history. Clinton Sponge was ordered to do 50 hours community service and Emma Sponge 40 hours over the next 10 months. So curious to know your thoughts on that penalty handed down by the judge. A $1,500 fine each, a spent conviction, 40 to 50 hours community service for producing false invoices for the transport of stolen cattle. So is that enough of a deterrent? Let me know your thoughts. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. That's the text. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Sixteen past twelve. Well, this year cattle export numbers from WA's north were well down on average, and that was mainly due to a lack of demand from Indonesia. Broom Port Manager Mel Gower says the last ship sailed later than usual, but all mustering, trucking and exporting has now finished for the year. Typically, we uh, aim for th around 30 vessels. Um, so we ended up with 24. So the, the cattle uh, exports continue until they can't get their cattle off the um, gib or um, 
or the uh, rains come. So the rains didn't come and then still haven't uh, reached us. So the um, the boats kept coming till the, uh, in, well, mid-November. But as I said, we've only hit the 62,000 mark. So we're well shy of our normal 100,000 for, uh, for the season. So the boats have dried up before the rains have come. Yes, yes. So uh, we we could have um, get done a couple more boats, but uh, the um, the market um, calls the uh, end of the season. So uh, that's the that's it. Sixty two thousand and twelve hundred of those were uh, at the beginning of the season from the Nine Eagle, where the uh, Fitzroy Bridge was uh, closed or was uh, shut off. So they needed to um, bring cattle from Darwin down to Broome, and we imported cattle for the first time in our history. So really, just over 60,000 exported cattle, live cattle, out of Broome. What's that compared to, say, an average year? Normally, we aim for upwards towards 100,000. Um, if we get 85 to um, 95, that's, um, that's a good, uh, good number, and we're happy with that. But um, not so much this year. Obviously, the uh, floods in January have had a huge effect, um, and the the mortality, um, I'm not sure of the mortality rate, but uh, that's obviously uh, one of the reasons. And I'm guessing that it would be um, building the herd numbers back up for next year will be another part of that uh, reasoning. 40,000 head difference compared to a quote-unquote normal year. And of course, you're not putting all of that down to numbers lost in January floods, but certainly a significant amount of that could be attributed to those floods, you think? Absolutely, yes. Um, it's uh, the lump of obviously had uh, issues uh, during the season with the lumpy skin disease uh, and foot and mouth, uh, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, but uh, that didn't affect us too much. Uh, it was more about um, uh, the uh, flood or the uh, end, end result is that there's a shortage of um, cattle to export. So, But um, interestingly, we had a, a broader range of countries that uh, this year, for Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines and of course Indonesia is the uh, main importer of our cattle. So do you think it's fair to say then that the number of live cattle going to Indonesia is even lower than that 60,000 figure gives on because a significant market portion is now going into a range of other markets be that Vietnam or Malaysia or the likes? Yes it it appears that um, during that um, um, hold of uh, cattle uh, into Indonesia that uh, Malaysia and the Philippines have taken um, cattle during that period. So, as I said, it hadn't affected us uh, greatly, but it just changed the, um, the countries that the cattle were going to or increased the number of uh, countries the cattle were going to. And have you heard anything at this stage from exporters and what their thinking is going to happen when the season kicks off next year? Do you know at this stage? No, I haven't had any feedback yet. Uh, we're all uh, waiting with bated breath to see what uh, next year brings us because uh, we're, we're behind a, a fair bit. So uh, it'll be an interesting um, conversation to see where, when the season's going to start and um, how it's going to roll for next year. So very interested in finding out um, how we're going to uh, get our cattle numbers up uh, for uh, the next season, starting hopefully Easter next year. Broome Port Operations Manager Mal Gower speaking to Alice Marshall. 20 past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. The competition watchdog, the ACCC, is going to take a closer look at the charges levied by the big stevedoring companies 
after noticing the stevedore's high profit margins increasing by almost 25% in the last year. Now, the ACCC wants to work out if port users, including farmers, are being ripped off. Deputy Chair of the ACCC, Mick Keogh, hasn't formed a conclusive view, but says the stevedore's profits do raise a few areas of concern. I guess the thing that struck us in reviewing the operations of the stevedores is reasonably high profitability levels being reported by the major stevedores over the last couple of years. And when we looked into the detail of that, a lot of that seems to be associated with a movement of the main source of revenue from the maritime side, in other words, from shipping companies to the land side, so the land transport sector. So the charges uh, applied to the land transport sector, accessing the dock, picking up containers and returning containers uh, is where a lot of the revenue is now being extracted. And uh, certainly it seems to us there's areas for concern there in relation to whether the profitability levels are reasonable or whether there's starting to be a bit of uh, almost monopoly pricing applied there and that needs further looking at. Is there enough transparency around whether these charges are justified? Probably not. Um, One of the difficulties is, um, for example, if you're an owner of a cargo, you negotiate with the shipping line to get uh, that container shipped. The shipping line then contracts with the stevedores and the stevedores uh, levy the charges on the users to get those containers onto ships and off ships. And it's that indirect connection between the freight owner and uh, the stevedores that creates the difficulty because the the owner of the cargo, for, never, for example, never directly negotiates with the stevedores, only with the shipping company. So it's it's always um, where where you see those charges through the supply chain that the owner of the cargo doesn't have direct responsibility for. That's where it becomes difficult to track whether they're fair and whether they're appropriate or not. And so that's where our focus will be in the coming 12 months. Okay, so what will you actually do in that 12 months? Will you do another report like this one or do you need – will you look for direction from the government for, to do a, a deeper investigation? Um, no, we, we will off our own resources do a more detailed investigation. We uh, routinely have reported on the stevedoring sector for quite a number of years now and we are able to obtain uh, a fair bit of detailed information. So basically it will be a matter of focusing and getting more detail of some of the activities that are occurring. We do note that the Productivity Commission has suggested a mandatory code for stevedores in terms of the landside charges. We haven't expressed a strong view either way on that at the moment, and that will be a further consideration during the coming 12 months as well. And just on those landside charges, which you, you said have increased, uh, I mean, we at the ABC recently reported on on one example, one of the two big stevedores, DP World, that it's going to increase its so-called terminal access charges, and they're charges that, that didn't even exist only a few years ago. Uh, from That's January right. 1, they'll increase by more than 50% in Melbourne, close to 40% in both Sydney and Brisbane. I mean, they're big increases 
uh, one year increases on a charge that, that that didn't exist not long ago. They certainly are, and uh, as I said, what what we've observed in our work is minimal changes to the water side. Uh, in other words, minimum changes in the charges levied on the shipping companies and a substantial transfer of those charges onto the land side to the terminal access charges, as you indicated. And part of the reason for that is there's been actually consolidation in the shipping uh, industry, so less suppliers and more uh, consolidated uh, shipping lines visiting Australia. So there's a number of moving parts, but you're right, the terminal access charge, for example, wasn't there five or six years ago, there's been a lot of transfer of the waterside charges onto the land side, uh, and that's certainly something uh, we want to have a much more detailed look at in the next 12 months uh, before deciding what the response should be. Okay, so for for both the the companies exporting products and and the people like farmers who produce those products, uh, I mean, are they getting ripped off? Uh, that's the uh, very important question, whether the particularly two major stevedores are taking advantage of their situation to extract monopoly profits or whether, in fact, they're still in the mode of recovering reasonable returns for a lot of the large investments that were made, as I said, between 2012 and 2015. That's really the question we want to have a much deeper dive into in the next 12 months. So at this point, it's a matter of uh, watch this space? Yes, yes. ACCC Deputy Chair Mick Keogh with Angus Verley. 26 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And a couple of big WA farming properties have hit the market this week. The first one is WA's largest corporate freehold broadacre farm, Meriden Farms in WA's Wheatbelt. And the other is a portfolio of properties, including two wineries, seven vineyards and a farm in Franklin River in the state's Great Southern. The winery and farm portfolio sale is being managed by Stephen Vaughan, principal of Ray White Rural WA. Stephen, what's included in this offering? So it's a broad range of properties starting with, but not the least of, uh, Black Bottle, which is a quite a large farming property at Franklin River. It's uh, just over 5,000 hectares of land that is used for grain production and at this point sheep would also suit cattle and certainly has the potential even for more viticulture. It's probably, yeah, it's probably the biggest of the assets. Nearby in Mount Barker, we've got West Cape Howe and across at Margaret River, we have Hayshed Hill. There are seven vineyards on top of the wineries. The wineries also encompass vineyards, but there are seven separate vineyards that uh, are spread again from Mount Barker through Franklin River and across to Margaret River. <coughs> Margaret River, um, Hayshed Hill, encompasses Rustico Restaurant, and that's a very popular restaurant that... Um, a lot of people use, and I think you know, it's also used for wedding functions, apart from you know, <clears throat> normal lunches. How unique is a an offering, a portfolio like this? Well, it is unique. I mean, in the past, we've seen you know quite a few wineries, vineyards come up, but usually just as a single entity. Whereas this is being a whole group of um, <clears throat> viticultural assets, you know, ranging across uh, three Appalachian areas. Yeah, look, I've never seen it before. 
Yep, so it is It is unique. And why are the owners wanting to get out? They're wanting to retire. They've been in the business for over 30 years and they're um, at that time of life where, yep, they want to move on. And who are the owners? Are they all Western Australians? They're all Western Australians. The main hands-on person who won't mind being uh, quoted is Rob Quenby. Uh, he's a viticulturalist and runs a viticultural business. And um, then the other two are investor partners with long-term interest in agricultural property, uh, both based in Perth. And where do you expect the interest to come from? I would imagine that we're going to see most of the interest come from the corporate sector within Australia and uh, the rest will come from outside of Australia. We're looking to sell the whole operation as uh, as a whole, but we may well be pressured into uh, looking at offers on the individual parts, and uh, which we will, we will do. You could imagine the assets around West Cape Howe and the, the four nearby or attached vineyards would possibly look at going as one. At Franklin River, you've got Black Bottle, the large farming operation, and you've got Russell Road Vineyard, which is the largest vineyard in WA, possibly going as one, but doesn't have to. Do you imagine that you know some of the other players in the wine industry in WA might be interested? Look, I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, interest coming out of the wine sector. And look, I can already, I can already tell you that we have interest coming from within the wine sector. Yeah, so look, it's a bit early to make a judgment which way it's all going to go. And the sort of ballpark that you're looking at, if you can put a figure on it? Look, uh, a bit of a, always a tough one to answer, but I think it's going to be sort of 130 to 150 million. And, you know, that would be a situation of more or less walk in, walk out. And that's why it's got a, quite a broad range because there's, uh, you know, obviously stock, wine stock and, uh, and plant, et cetera, that would be inclusive of in that price. Obviously, there's been a few challenges in the wine industry over recent years, um, in particular with the tariffs on wine going into China. Uh, in terms of the timing, timing of the selling of properties like this, what do you make of that? Oh, I think the timing is excellent because I think there's a move afoot from the government to try and reopen the, the, the door to uh, the Chinese market. So I'm sure there are people around the world looking at um, <clears throat> that opportunity. Steve, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Stephen Vaughan, he's the principal of Ray White Rural WA. And as I mentioned earlier, WA's largest corporate freehold broadacre farm is also up for sale. This is the Meriden Farms Wheat Belt Portfolio, which comprises a total of almost 78,000 hectares. The big grain production operation is currently jointly owned by the Saudi Agricultural and Livestock Investment Company, SALIC, and Penn Agri Farms. The joint owners have only had the property for four years, buying it from WA Farming Identity John Nicoletti in 2019 for an estimated $60 million. Now, while the owners and the real estate agent Collier's won't comment on the asking price. Industry speculation suggests they're asking sort of over $150 million. 28 to 1 here on the Country Hour. 
Jonathan Hopper in the studio with the headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. The Federal Health Minister has rejected a bid from private health insurers for higher premiums next year. Mark Butler has told private health insurers to have another go after they asked to hike premiums up by 6%. Mr Butler used his ministerial power to block the request, which he says is unreasonable amid cost of living pressures. He also cited the private health industry doubling its profits as a factor in his decision. Excuse me. The WA government is expecting the state's budget surplus to reach $3.7 billion this financial year, $400 million more than had been forecast earlier this year. The revised forecast has been released as part of Treasurer Rita Safiotti's first mid-year review. And some of Australia's top male cricketers are expected to attract big bids in tonight's Indian Premier League auction. Among the 21 Australians to have nominated is fast bowler Mitchell Stark, who is set to return to the IPL after an eight-year absence. Captain Pat Cummins and batter Travis Head are also in contention. Thanks, Belinda. Jonathan, thank you so much for that update. 27 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Shortly, heading over to far north Queensland again today, just to checking on the flooding situation and today looking at the impact on livestock. Uh, quite a few livestock now dying due to exposure in those conditions. More on that shortly. And then just before one, it is off to Muche today for the results of the sheep market. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson, uh, take us for a look around the southwest land division. Yeah, hi, Belle. Um, we do have this uh, line of thunderstorms that's moving through the central wheat belt and, and more importantly, the southern parts of the central wheat belt. So uh, parts of York and Cunderdon and Calabaran and uh, Corrigan will potentially be getting these thunderstorms. There is a little bit of rain falling out of these storms. Not a lot. Um, some places are around five millimetres. So um, for the next uh, sort of 12 hours or so, you could potentially get around sort of that five to 10 millimetres out of these storms as they slowly drift south. And they're going to move into the northern parts of um, the Great Southern over the rest of the afternoon and evening. Um, That feature doesn't go away in a hurry. It just moves um, to uh, basically the south and east uh, during tomorrow. Um, So uh, the goldfields will get some of that thunderstorm activity. So again, uh, around 10 millimetres is possible out of these storms. So uh, places like Kalgoorlie may get something or Southern Cross um, as that uh, system uh, just gradually moves to the east. And as we track on to um, Thursday, it's going to move further to the south, um, that sort of convergence thunderstorm area. So it's going to move over the southern coastal districts. Um, so Esperance may get it, um, Albany may get it, as well as places like uh, Bridgetown and uh, Ravensort. Um, rainfall, again, 10 millimetres would be a lot for Thursday out of that feature. So it would be more around to that 5 to 10 millimetres if you do get a storm, if you know what I mean, Bell. And then as we get to Friday and Saturday, that feature basically gets washed out of the system and the rest of the Southwest Land Division is looking um, pretty good as far as not getting rain, which is probably not so good if you want rain, if you know what I mean, Belle.
Oh, Joey, so, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, now, let's have a look in northern and eastern parts, starting in the north. It's still really hot in some parts of the north. Oh, it's, it's really hot. So uh, Fitzroy Crossing, we're going for 47 today and 47 tomorrow. And Marble Bar, we're going for, I think, 45 today, then creeping up to 47. Have you, have you experienced some 47-degree days, Belinda? Mm, I don't think that I have, and I don't think I want to, Joey. I'll, no. I'll stay put. For the time yeah, being. I think I've I've <laughs> done one day in South Australia, and yeah, felt like my lungs were going to dry every breath of air that came in. So, um, yeah, it's certainly hot through the north, but we do have thunderstorm activity over the far north Kimberley today, or northeastern parts like the Kununurra Argyle area, and that thunderstorm during the next thunderstorm area during the next few days is going to extend further south. So. Hopefully, as that extends further south and you get thunderstorms over those hot areas, you'll get some reprieve um, from the rain falling out of the sky. Um, So, uh, yeah, the thunderstorm activity is going to extend all the way into the interior by Thursday and Friday. But as far as rainfall amounts go, through the Kimberley area, we can expect 20 to 30 millimetres from Thursday onwards out of thunderstorms but the storms through the interior and also pushing into the Pilbara, um, we're not expecting much rain with that, just some high-based thunderstorms where the rain evaporates underneath. But certainly the big thing there is the really hot temperatures and also the hot nights, Belinda. And then back to this afternoon, Joey, any warnings? Yeah, there is a fire weather warning uh, for the mid parts of the Midwest, so uh, the central west and, and parts of the lower west. And there's also one for a similar area tomorrow for yeah, poor fire weather conditions. So that covers uh, the Perth Hills and parts of the central west. Um, so, yeah, certainly hot and windy and dry conditions expected. And we also have uh, strong wind warnings for the uh, Geraldton Coast, Lancelin Coast, Lewin Coast, as well as the Esperance Coast for this afternoon. And that heat wave warning that we've had for many days is continuing as well, Bill. Bell. No worries. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 21 to 1. Let's take a look at the rainfall figures now. Richard Hudson in the studio. Yeah, no rain at all anywhere in the northern and eastern forecast districts, which is a bit unusual at this time of year. And in the southwest land division forecast districts, hardly any rain either. In the central west, Berkshire Valley had four, was the top. And then in the central wheat belt, the most was Condit, which had six mils. Um, There are a number of fires burning throughout WA at the moment. There's about five, and they're all at an advice level. So there's a few harvest bans in place, Uh, one for the city of Greater Geraldton, including Mullawar, one for the Shire of Minganew, and one in the Shire of Carnamar. That's for west of Brand Mudge Road, and also a harvest ban in place in the Shire of Irwin. If you're not sure and you are possibly still harvesting in that area, I can't think there'd be too many, though, just get in touch with your Shire to find out what the details are of those harvest bans. And due to the risk of fire, a total fire ban is in place for a number of shires in the Midwest Gascoigne region. There's a total fire ban in place for Carnamar, Chapman Valley, Carew, Dandarigan, Greater Geraldton, Irwin, Minganew, Mora, Morrowa, Northampton, Perenjury, Three Springs and Victoria Plains. In the Goldfields Midlands region, 
There's a total five-out in place for Dalwallanu, Corder, Wongan, Balladu. So you know the story when there's a total five-out in place, no lighting of fires for cooking, camping or anything, and no hot work such as grinding and welding and no off-road use of four-wheel drives or quad bikes. And uh, just make sure you check with your shire if there is a harvest and vehicle movement ban imposed, just so you know what you can and can't do. And for more information, just go to Emergency WA. Hey, uh, Bill, we heard some incredible rainfall totals yesterday in far north Queensland associated with the fallout of tropical cyclone Jasper. It just kept raining, and I think it is still raining. Unfortunately, some of the landholders in that part of the world are now saying livestock are dying due to exposure to not only the wet conditions and windy conditions, but just up on the tableland, so a tiny bit further inland from places like Cairns and Port Douglas and Cooktown, it's starting to get a bit cold. So Joy Marriott runs cattle at Mountain View Station, which is about 80 kilometres southwest of Cooktown, and she says the flooding and the current weather conditions are really testing the whole community. We've probably got a 20-kilometre-hour wind coming from the northeast, shifting back to the east, and, um, yeah, it, it, we've had a clear morning. Not not clear skies, overcast, but at least you can see the hills, and... Um, but, yeah, it started to rain again and looks pretty heavy. Mm. Is that making you feel nervous, Joy? Oh, yeah, we're pretty resigned now. We're um, starting to lose cattle from the exposure. And, yeah, yesterday was sort of if it had it cleared up, we might have pulled through. But, yeah, the people are losing stuff. And the, when you see, you know, unprecedented amounts of native animals just dying from the exposure, you know, there's dead possums falling out of trees and... And the wallabies and the big old eastern greys and, yeah, it just makes you sad. You've had a phenomenal amount of rain, Joy. Uh, have you been able to measure it all? Yes, we've had 863 mil from the start. Just before it started raining, we had a gigantic bushfire coming in from the conservation areas next door up in the mountains and we were sort of focused on fighting fires and um, then it started to rain and, like, you know, where everyone's happy that, that the fires are out and we don't, we've been fighting fires for four, four months now on and off and um, glad to see the rain and, um, yeah, well, that's just life on the land. It, it's pretty harsh, but uh, just hoping there's not worse to come. Livestock losses, I imagine, weigh heavily on you. What about infrastructure losses? Oh yeah, we you can replace them. Some of the walls have, have um, been washed through, and obviously floodgates. But as I said, that's not a problem. And, and of course, roads washed out. And yeah, we nearly we actually nearly got got washed off one of our dam overflows the other day in the buggy. So we're sort of a bit wary about going anywhere until it all um, subsides. Which, as you say, as of uh, lunchtime today, it very much is not over. You've still got uh, wind and rain there. The Lakeland community is a productive ag hotspot. How are others in your community going? How are banana farmers faring? Yeah, well, any, anyone who's got livestock, um, yeah, they're the same. And, and, and we're, we're up in the mountains at the head of the catchment, so we're probably faring a bit better than people, you know, on the river flats and further down where there's been flooding and I was talking to one of the growers the other day yesterday morning I think it was and they reckon they'd lost about 20,000 plants but obviously with the prolonged wet 
soil is going to be more, they just fall over, you know, and, and with this wind, it's just really, it's not, 20 k's is not really strong, but just relentless. And um, I've been here 30 something years, and one year, you know, we had a drought break in sort of end of January and it rained for two weeks, but it was warm. It wasn't, um, it wasn't cold, like it's cold, which is quite different. Usually a cyclone around, it's that hot, you can hardly move. So another day of watching the rain come down. Are you all going to be okay? Well, we, you know, there's always positives. And, and um, here we had a little baby donkey born last night and his dad's called Jasper, so we can't call him Jasper. He'll be Jasper <sighs> Jr. Oh, that's very sweet. Congratulations. He's here and um, his mum made it through the, through the cyclone and thank goodness. And, yeah, she's all good and he's all good and... Yeah, we're happy to see that little fire. Joy Marriott, grazier from Mountain View Station near Lakeland in far north Queensland, speaking to Amy Phillips about some of their struggles battling with the aftermath of Cyclone Jasper that crossed the coast last week. Quarter to one here on the Country Hour. Well, when you drive around at this time of year, you'll often see a mailbox or a hay bale with Christmas decorations. But near Gunnedah in northern New South Wales, some farm kids have started a new tradition, building wooden Christmas trees to put alongside their road. It was born out of the 2022 floods. Rural reporter Lara Webster took a trip herself to meet the little people spreading some extra joy to their neighbours. It's beginning to look a lot Rosie Galton. My name is Pippa Galton. My name is Elsie Groves. My name is Grace Groves. And who have you got beside you, Grace? And Alice is beside me. Prue Galton. Kate Groves. My mum is part of the wood turners here in Gunnedah and one of their jobs was to collect and clean out a shed uh, from a deceased estate. So she got a heap of wood, it was all going to go to the tip and Instead, she brought it out to our house in order to make Christmas trees as a family. However, the floods did get in the way and we had quite a few families staying with us over the floods and we needed a project to keep everybody busy. So we created lots of trees to share around the neighbourhood with our neighbours. How has it grown in that, well, this is year two now? We collected all the trees back from a majority of the neighbours that we distributed to last year, stored them all, all the Christmas lights, and we've redistributed them as far as we could um, from our farm and our neighbouring farm um, to the north and the south of us. And we've also put on extra lights and we've found extra solar bits and pieces and decorations as well to try and make our road as Christmassy as possible. <laughs> Tell me about you too, Prue, your involvement. Yes, well, like Kate said, we were fortunate enough to be able to just stay straight across the road with Kate and Nat Groves during the floods. Um, and the kids, I don't think, knew that there was a flood going on outside of the levee bank because they were so involved in making these Christmas trees and creating all the Christmas trees themselves. They pretty much did all the trees themselves with a little bit of help from adults with drilling and stuff. Um, so yeah, just to see all their creations come together and then the excitement of them all loading them into the trailer and then going along to everyone's driveway and yeah, putting them all out for not only themselves but all of the families along our little stretch of Orange Grove Road. 
So who learnt how to use a drill? Oh, There's lots of hands going up here. Everywhere. And what else did you learn how to use? Um, well, we learn how to use lots of different tools and we got to have a little bit of fun with making them. What was your favourite tool? Well, probably the drill. The drill? Yeah, the drill. Yeah. yeah. And what about you? What else did you love about well, putting all this together? Well, we loved how, even though we had our own one, we joined and helped everyone. And for our road, making more for other people for to decorate our road. How much did your neighbours and friends love seeing what you created? Well, they really loved the part where with all the lights on it to make our own little Christmas street, Santa street. It's a Santa street. What's yeah. it like having your own Santa street? Yeah, it's fun driving home in the night and seeing all the lights. Um, and the other thing we did is we upcycled all the wood that was going to be thrown out and used for nothing and made it into our own street. Riding in a trailer was fun. Why? With what? the dogs. Oh, was that the best part in the trailer with the yeah. dogs? Yeah. <laughs> and what else did you help do as well as being the trailer rider? What else? I helped make the Christmas trees. Do, do you guys have favourite Christmas trees? Mm. I really like Elsie's and I's because we found like little bowls and for presents to put under the wooden trees, but they were still wood, but to make into presents. Wow, and so what do some of the other trees look like? Well, Cooper made one that was really cool. It was um, 3D. 3D? Yes. Wow, that's getting fancy. And they're all different shapes and sizes and everyone, everyone's Christmas trees were unique. Were unique. Wow, what about any favourites for you? Um, no, my favourite thing was probably like meeting the Galtons in the floods and going close to them. And mine, I like mine the best. You like your tree the best. Can you tell me about your tree? What do you like best? Um, the light. The lights. What kind of lights do you have? What kind of colours? Red, orange, green, green, blue, yellow, yellow. Wow. Do you think Santa's going to enjoy yeah. the Christmas? Yes. yes. Yeah. He's gonna see them. <laughs> he is gonna see. He's gonna be able to find you. Yeah. Oh, he'll know where to leave the presents. And we got a reindeer on the top of our sign. And wow. Where do you think the tradition will grow? We've got. A whole band of helpers here who are keeping Christmas spirit alive. Where to next, do you think? Do you think it's going to get bigger? I think so. I feel like more neighbours will start to hopefully get involved and we might be able to try and make some more trees uh, so that we can spread the joy a little bit further each year. Just seeing the joy of everyone's face when they drive down the road and see some decorations all up and getting into the Christmas spirit because you can quite often just get so busy on the farm that... Things sort of just continue day to day, so you just got to make time and yeah, enjoy the good times.
our mums and farmers, Prue Galton and Kate Groves, along with their little girls. And it's not many sleeps to go now, is it? It is eight minutes to one. Shortly off to Muche for the results of the sheep market. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for the world today. The rain is finally easing in far north Queensland, but flooding remains, with evacuations still underway and a long clean-up ahead. The United States asks Israel to change the way it's fighting in Gaza as the civilian death toll there approaches 20,000. And in a major shift, the Catholic Church will allow unmarried and same-sex couples to be blessed, but with a list of strict conditions. And you'll get the yarding and the prices at the Muche sheep market shortly. First, though, the country's sheep flock is expected to produce 328 million kilograms of greasy wool by the end of the 2023-24 season, the exact same closing figure as the previous season. Stephen Hill is the chair of the Australian Wool Production Forecasting Committee and he says the result is due to the reasonable seasonal conditions. Although it's average to dry, the sheep have been doing really well and our fears of you know, a greater impact from El Nino coming through haven't been fully realised yet, especially with this um, late spring, early summer rain events of the last three, four, five weeks have really helped kick things along. And have people also been taking the opportunity with the lower prices being paid for sheep? sheep and lambs at the moment to restock and replenish their flocks while prices are lower as well? Yeah, well, there's two points there. People are holding on to stock a bit longer, as you say, because um, it's it's more favourable to hang on to the wool than to take the current lower livestock and meat prices. And yes, some of, especially some of the larger farmers have taken the opportunity to, to buy in some new genetics and good, good stock at um, reasonably low levels. And is there any particular state that you've noticed is that's leading the way there with wool production? Yeah, definitely. New South Wales, which is the, the largest wool producing state in Australia, they've had a good lift of nearly 4%. And the other one that's had a lift is uh, South Australia of 2.6%. All the other states have had small decreases, um, but just the, the weight of the, especially New South Wales, has um, held the, the national number. It's no secret that the wool market hasn't been at its best this year. Do you think that will turn people away from wool production or those figures that you're saying the lift is there but it's not reflecting that people are moving away from wool at all? No, well, I think it's the exact opposite. I mean, wool prices aren't as great as they have been, but in my mind, and, and I guess producers, everyone always wants more, it's not too bad. And compared to other farm outputs, it's it's okay, especially the um, the livestock and meat prices. So they're choosing to, to hang on, shear, even if they're selling, they're shearing first. And also, um, we, we've touched on how things are tracking over on the eastern states, but how's Western Australia's wool production sitting? Western Australia, they've dropped 6.5%. They've got a bit of a split view over there. They've been quite pessimistic on the back of some um, policy issues and so forth. But there are some people there as well that um, see the opportunity to buy in new stock at favourable levels and continue with wool production. So it's not quite as bad as it was. And um, the sentiment in general's really changed nationally with this this recent rain. And probably there's there's also been a bounce in both wool and 
we keep talking about depressed sheep meat prices, but they've come off their lows in the last month or so and they're, they're um, improving. Do you think many people are sitting on bales and waiting for that price to lift or there is plenty coming through the auction room still? No, there's plenty coming through, absolutely. Um, the figures up to the first five months are showing a 9% increase in um, wool offered at auction compared to this time last year and a just over 2% increase in wool tested. The extra wool coming into the auction, I think, is mainly um, from the crossbred end, which potentially has been in store, and they're currently accepting the prices that are being paid, which has been depressed for some years now. Around cash flow, I think, could be one of the reasons. And the early shearing, uh, well, when I say early, compared to the, the delays due to weather that we um, had last season, um, everyone seems to be on time, potentially even ahead of time. When the committee did meet this week, what was the overall sentiment did you feel about the outlook for the wool industry? It's definitely reasonably positive coming into the new year. There also seems to be some um, a general feeling that possibly the El Nino won't be as big an impact as some people first feared. In saying that, it's a, no one's got a crystal ball. But yeah, those prices have lifted off their lows and in general terms, the first part of the, the new year, more often than not, creates a little bit of a rally in prices as well. So that the fact that the, the season's a bit better and prices are all starting to improve has got a little bit of um, spring in people's steps, definitely. Australian Wool Production Forecasting Committee Chair Stephen Hill speaking to Cara Jeffrey, and just talking about the latest forecast of 328 million kilograms of greasy wool by the end of the 23-24 season, which is the exact same closing figure as last season. It is up 4 million kilograms on the forecast just four months ago. In August it was. So it's updated to 328 million kilograms off around or just over 72 million sheep across the country. The Australian Wool Exchange Eastern Market Indicator closed for the year at 1,212 cents a kilo clean. And the wool auction sales will resume in the week commencing January the 8th where 50,000 bales are expected to be offered. Off to Mushay now, and today's sheep sale at Mushay was about half the size of last week's, and it is the final one for the year. MLA reporter Terry Birkin has been at just about every one of the sales this year. Hello, Terry. Hi, Melinda. It was a lighter sale to finish the year, with just shy of 6,000 in total. Some reasonable lines of trade lands and the odd pen of heavy lands were presented, along with large lines of store lands on offer. The trade in heavy lambs eased 5 to $7, while store lambs held firm and the mutton market remained at last week's lower rates. The buyer gallery was reasonably full, however not all were operating and sitting off the rail. Store lambs started at $9 up to $78, while light lambs were selling from $50 to $91. Trade lambs from $78 to $123 and heavy lambs sold up to $135 a head. Most ram lambs sold between $70 and $83, while ram habits sold to $35 a head. Heavy older weather sold to a top of $35, while merino weather hoggets averaged $20 and crossbred hoggets sold to a top of $69 a head. Pony ewes ranged from $1 to $15, medium ewes from $10 to $30 and heavy ewes sold up to $35, while slaughter rams made $5 to $15 a head. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you for that. And going through the market details at Mushay today, just over 3,000 lambs and almost 
3,000 sheep going under the hammer. Good to talk to you today on the ABC right across WA. Time for the news. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.